So, George has done a great deal to bring music and feeling to our church. He's, I bring very much uh, understanding, that's my priority. His is very experiential, and I think what a wonderful compliment that has been to our church in the couple of years that he's been here. And one of the things that he's working hard to do is bring experiential meaning to our celebration together of Advent. We've always done the Advent candles together, but we've done it because it's a thing. But George is trying to help bring some understanding to the meaning of the thing, to bring meaning to the candles, to bring uh, stories and songs that go with it, in order to foster the experiential understanding of these weeks that lead us up to the Feast of Christmas that we call Advent. Now, one of the things that he and the worship team have done is to create a focal point for each year. You'll notice this year it is love, last year it was hope. So I assume because the candles all have a meaning assigned to each one that last the first candle must be hope because that's what we did last year. The second candle must be love because that's what we're doing this year and I'm assuming well whatever that next year is you'll know that's what this candle is for and uh, so that's kind of what we're doing. I texted George out in California as I was getting ready to make sure I had them all right. It is hope, joy, peace, and love. Those are the four themes. Well, when I heard about those themes, I started thinking about the lessons that we would be doing during this time. And I have to say, those four words are easy. <laughs> you, you could uh, speak for two years on just those four words and not run out of stuff to say there's a very rich and powerful spirituality embedded in them. So with this year's Advent focus being love, last week we began with loving difficult people, the folks who get under our skin, the ones whose inside hurt gets turned toward us and in turn hurts. How do we love these people? Well, if you missed last week, I would encourage you to go online and have a listen. This week I want to talk about loving the faraway people. You might have heard the expression somewhere in a poetry class when you were in high school or somewhere in a biology class, read in tooth and claw. It's a, it's a line from a poem written back in the 1800s, and the phrase became part of the vocabulary with which we discuss biological natural selection. <clears throat> it basically means this. It's a tough planet that we live on, and you either adapt and survive or you get eaten. That's the basic thrust of that phrase, red in tooth and claw. So if you were a light-colored moth, and you live on light-colored trees, that is really good for you, because the moth-eating birds can't see you, and they can't eat what they can't see, so you are doing well. But if during the Industrial Revolution in London, the factories start putting out so much soot that the trees begin to turn dark, then you, Mr. Light-Colored Moth, are in trouble because you will be seen and you will be eaten. And then you won't have babies. You won't have light-colored moth babies, and pretty soon there won't be any light-colored moths left in London. But if you're one of the few dark-colored moths who didn't get eaten when the trees were light-colored, and or if you were a mutation moth that was born uh, dark when your parent moths were light, then this is really good for you to have a soot storm because now 
The tree trunks are the same color that you are, and now you cannot be seen. And again, birds don't eat what they can't see, and pretty soon you get to live long enough to have lots of dark-colored moth babies, and pretty soon London has transitioned from a light-colored moth population to a dark-colored moth population, and that works out nicely for you if you're a dark moth. And these kinds of selective processes have been going on for a long time, And your brain, and my brain, and your kidneys, and mine, your upper and lower brains, mine, have been profoundly shaped over a long period of time by this dynamic. It's all about the advantage that we have when it comes to getting our genes passed on to the next generation. Who's going to be better at not being eaten before you have babies? And who's going to be better at finding food and not starving to death before we can pass our genes on to babies? And who's going to be a better competitor in this world that is red in tooth and claw? So you probably learned something like that in a 10th grade biology class along the way. Now in past lessons, we have said how important it is to understand this selective process when it comes to our spiritual journeys. This isn't just about biology class, because we have bodies and we have brains. And those things are always working when we're in life. And those things are always working as we are traveling the spiritual journey. If you don't take into account the way that your body works, the way that your brain works, your spiritual journey is not going to be a very long one or a very productive one. So you'll remember our lesson on the virtue of self-control. You'll remember how important it is to factor in both the upper brain and the lower brain, those People who had powerful lower brains, powerful survival brains, powerful dopamine balancing brains, these survived and thrived, and consequently they passed their genes along to us. So consequently, we have a concentrated form of that survive and thrive dynamic. So if you didn't have a powerful lower brain, you wouldn't be here. If you didn't have the instinct to overeat or oversex or overdrink or over sloth, if you didn't have that brain, you wouldn't be here. So we said, it is not a successful strategy to muster self-control without working with the lower brain. Now, if you missed that lesson, I'd encourage you to go into the archives and have a listen to it because it kind of bears on what we're going to talk about today. On the spiritual journey, we have to factor in the powerful dynamics that go on in the way that our bodies work and in the way that our brains work. The history of how it is that we got here, those things affect us. And when it comes to loving faraway people, we are well served to understand both the benefits and the limitations that we have when we awakened in the brains and in the bodies that we did. So, when you prickle at some other woman that you see as more beautiful than yourself. When you get all prickly inside at some other woman who seems to be more fashionable or more successful or more loved or maybe even more love-worthy, 
Or when you see another man who gets the girls more than you do or makes more money than you do or seems more virile than you do or lands more contracts than you do, when you get those prickly feelings inside in those kinds of context relationships, those competitive situations, your typical religious response if you grew up in the church that I did is this. When you have those feelings come up inside, we reference the wisdom of our enlightened spiritual ancestors who taught us that that kind of attitude is bad for us. They probably used the word sin. There might have been a finger up while they were doing it. And so we reference them, and we tell ourselves, and we tell one another, yeah, that jealousy thing that we do, that's bad. That undercutting thing that we do, that's bad. That gossiping thing, that bad-mouthing thing, that silent-hating thing that we do, yeah, that's bad. And then we say, stop it, which has enough truth in it that it comes back around again and again and again through the generations. That's bad. Stop it. Because it is. It's bad. Those kinds of attitudes do shrink our worlds down. Sure they do. It's unhealthy spirituality. Sure it is. But stop it doesn't do much to help solve our problem because it doesn't take into account that you and I wouldn't even be here if we hadn't inherited a very powerful set of interior impulses. We wouldn't even be here if we weren't wired to compete and to compete successfully. If someone has an advantage over me, I'm not going to get selected as a mate. If someone has an advantage over me, I'm not going to get the food that I need to mate if I don't see the competition, if I don't have a powerful mechanism for knowing that it's there, and then reacting to it and reacting well so that I either work with it or I overcome the competition. If I don't do that, there will be no offspring of me to pass on to the next generation. And even if I'm not interested in mating, those instincts are inside of us. They are driving us. They are defining how we live our lives Because those who went before us did succeed in competing and competing well. And so that means that the very fact that you and I are here means that our ancestors had and they passed on to us the drive, the drive to compete. Our ancestors had, and then they passed on to us this impulse, this powerful instinct. And because they did, it sits down there inside of our brains, and it makes sure that you and I survive and thrive. It makes sure that you and I see the competition, makes sure that we compensate for the competition, competition, that we survive and thrive. And it runs like an operating system in the back of our brains. There it is, invisible, but always running in the background. Compete, survive, thrive. Compete, survive, thrive. And stop it is a woefully inadequate response to go up against this powerful genetic dynamic that exists inside of our brains. So as you might imagine, I'm fixing to pick that up here in the South, I'm fixing to speak about what could potentially be a more adequate response because that's bad, stop it, isn't working for us. I am not unaware that we are six pages into a 13-page lesson and I have not yet mentioned the Bible. But I have mentioned natural selection. (laughs) Egad, what is this preacher thinking? (laughs) 
And I'm also not aware that that is troubling in many Christian circles because often uh, we ignore history and science. But I've come to the conclusion that before many of us can access the Bible, we need to access history and science. Now, I want to encourage those of you who might be a little concerned. Bible verses are coming. In fact, when I knew that I would be preaching about loving the faraway people, the first thing that came into my mind was Bible verses. But something has happened over these years, and that is that I've come to know you. And I know that many of you resist Bible verses, and I know that I can't just come to you with the ancient texts. It takes some ramp up. It takes a little bit of a roundabout approach, but Bible verses are coming. One of my long-term hopes is that as, our, as a community, we begin to develop a renewed appreciation for the Bible, but to get there, I know that we need to kind of come through the back door, and so here we are coming through the back door. So if you've been here for any length of time, you kind of know, boy, I love the science podcasts. Well, a couple of years ago, I listened to a biologist prevent, uh, present a very nuanced understanding of how this genetic disposition for competition really works out. Our brains really are wired for competition, but they're also wired for cooperation. We uh, humans have been working in groups long enough Family groups wandering the Serengeti, tribal groups populating the entire planet. We've been doing this long enough that we have selected for a very balanced survival strategy. We not only compete, we also cooperate. And when we do that, we survive even better than when we just simply compete. So, there is something about those who could sympathize with the other, who could look out for the other, that begin to find themselves having advantage in terms of moving their genes forward. It enhances this cooperation capacity, our chances of surviving and thriving. If I am part of a group that cares for each other, I'm going to do better. Our collective ability as a group is enhanced. And if my group as a whole does better, then I do better along with the group. So, If I watch out for your children and you watch out for my children, together we're going to do better. If when you are wounded, I take care of you, and if when I am wounded, you take care of me, together we're going to do better than we could do alone. So together we are more likely to survive and thrive. And so our cooperating gene great-great-grandparents, they also passed on their inherited cooperative trait to you and me. And so, when we look inside of ourselves, we see the competitive traits, we see the prickly feeling that we get when we deal with one another, but we also see a cooperative and an empathizing and a sympathy trait inside of us. When someone that you know is hurting, you hurt with them. When someone you know is crying, often you will cry with them. When you go to a funeral of someone that you are not even close to, you will often be moved with the emotion of those who are moved for you, be, moved around you, because you feel what they feel. Babies that are all put in a room, if one baby is happy as a clam, but then over here another one starts crying pretty soon, in sympathy, this one will start crying with that baby, because this baby can feel that baby's feelings. There is something also inside of us that feels one another's pain and sympathizes, empathizes, works together with that. So, when someone you know takes a hit, 
there's an instinctive response inside of you to want to help them recover from their hit. You see around this time of year, uh, typically as people are getting ready for the holiday, somebody's house will burn down. All their Christmas presents will burn down. And then the community will surround them and they will help rebuild the house and they will bring presents for the kids and those kinds of things happen. We all feel good because we recognize that that's inside of me too. If I lived in that neighborhood, I'd be doing the same thing. There is something inside of us that kicks in. We want to help. If someone loses a child or loses a parent or loses a loved one, we want to come and help because we feel the pain. That's in there too. So, being informed about the interior landscape, this is very helpful for us as we move forward on our spiritual journeys. It helps us know what we have to work with, and it also helps us know the challenges and the pitfalls that we're going to face. So here's something to notice when you look inside of yourself and you see those two things going on inside of you. When you watch your instinctive response, you can notice how when a house burns down in Raleigh or in your neighborhood, you might have one response, but it's a very different instinctive response when you hear about a house that burns down in Crimea. There is something about the closeness, the proximity that changes the experience that we have when we have it. They're very different responses. So our brains do help us cooperate. Our brains do help us empathize with one another, but only in a limited way. Within a limited circle, within a limited circle of proximity and distance. And the cooperation response, the sympathy-empathy response, is inversely proportional to the distance between us and the other. The plight of the faraway person does not move us nearly the way that the plight of the close-by person moves us. That's just the way our instinct brains work. That's what our great-great-great-grandparents did for us. They gave us brains wired to feel deeply for those who are close by. And that makes sense. Because feeling deeply for someone who's close by tends to enhance my group's capacity to survive and thrive. Caring deeply for somebody on the other side of the planet when I'm never going to get there, when I'm never even going to be there, that has no relevance at all to whether I'm going to survive and thrive. And so it makes sense that we would have a greater instinctive capacity for sympathy and care for the close-by person than we would for the far-away person. Our brains are wired to feel deeply for family. Our brains are wired to feel deeply for our circle of friends. Our brains are wired to feel deeply for our neighborhood, for our tribe, maybe even our city, perhaps. We tend to have strong responses toward people who look like we look, whose parents and whose children look like our parents and look like our children. Those who are nearby, those who share our same way of life. We might even extend that circle to a national identity. Americans who are hurt overseas, we might feel for because we're an American and we understand that feeling. And that's in there. And thank God it is. What a gift. Because it makes the spiritual life of loving the other so much easier. What if we only had the compete trait in our brains And we were commissioned by our spiritual tradition with loving the other. And we didn't have anything to work with. All we had was this thing we had to go up against. So it's a gift, this cooperation capacity that our brains will do, this instinctive chemical-driven response. It's a gift. But it's a limited gift. It only works up close.
and those who have gone before us who are our spiritual forebears, the saints and the sages in our tradition, they tell us that the links that exist between us, they're bigger than proximity. The connections between us, they extend to the whole of humanity. In fact, Paul taught us in Romans 8, Paul taught us in Romans 8 that our fate, our well-being is tied together with the fate and the well-being of the whole planet, the whole of the planet. So yours and my connectedness exists to the rocks and the trees, Paul tells us, to the great apes and to the frogs. Our sense of connectedness that we feel to those close to us, close by us, we have that same connectedness, those who've gone before us teach, with the whole of creation. However, even though those spiritual giants before us intuited these great truths, our brains don't instinctively take us there. In fact, our brains will actually work against us getting there. Our brains feel competition between us and faraway people because faraway people feel like a competitor for our well-being, a competitor for us achieving our destinies. So in one way, our brains really help us on the spiritual journey. And in the other way, those same brains also hinder us on the same spiritual journey. But the ancient truth is bigger than our brain instincts. The ancient wisdom calls us to a bigger perspective than our instinctive feelings typically access. So you're probably like me in the way that you developed as you were growing up. Your brain, like mine, realizes very early on, I can move my foot, but I can't move your foot. So consequently, I must be me, and you must be you over there. My brain realizes kind of early on that once I am me and you are you, that you and I are probably in competition for something good out there. And so my brain, like yours, realizes kind of early on that if I compete better, then I'm going to be doing well, and I can do that through both direct competition and through cooperation with a group of people that I call my people. So my brain helps me compete, helps me sense how connected I am to you. I help, my brain helps me see how my well-being and your well-being are interconnected. And my brain will take me there. But that's not the whole story. My instincts only access part of the great truth. There is a higher truth, a higher way and a truth and a life. The way intuited by those spiritual masters gone before us, the enlightened ones who went before us, who intuited a truth that is bigger than the chemicals in our brains tend to take us toward. So when our spiritual forebears intuited the deeper truth, they transcended the proximity criteria. And they did it by asking this fundamental question, who is my neighbor? We're getting really close to the Bible now. And Abraham discerned the divine voice. Abraham discerned the divine word. The forebear of all three of the Abrahamic religions heard God's blessing is given to us, our group, our people. It really is. But he also discerned that it has given us for the very purpose of taking it and giving it as a blessing to others. Others who are in our proximity circle, yes, to be sure, 
but also to those who are outside our proximity circle. That's a recap of the starting point of our tradition, our Judeo-Christian and Islamic tradition, the mandate that was given to the father of our faith. Be blessed so that you can be a blessing to all the nations, all the peoples of the earth. We put it up there on the wall. And then fast forward to the time of Jesus, and he reframed that same mandate given Abraham, and he put it in new words. Christians call those words the Great Commission. The Great Commission says something like this. Jesus speaking says, This new life that I have set before you, this transforming experience that you have that changes you and then you bring to bear on the world that you are creating each day, everything we've talked about in this leading up this year, this new kingdom, he called it, this new word, this new way, this new truth, this new life, from your circle of proximity, from here where we are us, I want you to take it and carry it to all the nations, all the peoples, all the earth. Then later, when Jesus was teaching this, his earliest followers to pray, teaching them the very basics of what prayer is, he said, pray this. Pray that it would be here on earth as it is in heaven. All the earth, all the peoples, all the nations would experience this same divine reality that I am giving to you. And now as we are approaching Christmas time, many churches will be reading the story of Jesus' birth in the Bible. And there in our story of beginnings in Luke chapter 2, the God messenger lays it out right up front and he says, this is the way that it's going to be. This baby is going to be born and it's going to be good news for you. This baby's going to be born and it's going to carry good, good news, but it's not just for you. Right there at the beginning it says, for all the peoples of all the earth. Right there embedded in all of our scriptures, in all of our narratives, there is this inescapable mandate that says, this thing is for people close by to you, And this thing is for people who are far away from you. God love, that thing that during our reflection during worship this morning, we said is in us because the Spirit of God is within us. That gift that we have, that we have received, that we give, that is God's very self. God love is for close by people. And God love is for far away people. God love that is in you because the Spirit of God, because the breath of God is within you, it is bigger than your brain chemistry. It is bigger than your body's instincts. It is a love that is bigger than can be understood by those impulses that we feel because of the way our brains have been shaped by our heritage. Brain chemistry is part of you, but so is God breath. So is the interior light of the divine. That is also part of you. And what do we do when we've got an impulse-driven side of ourselves and we've got a bigger truth, divine life side of ourselves? Well, what we do, our tradition tells us, is we walk a spiritual journey. 
We walk a journey that keeps continually awakening us to the life of the Spirit of God within us so that our brain chemistry doesn't ever go away, but this gets stronger. And this gets more a part of us, more a shaping reality within us until the day comes when our experience of the divine transcends even what our brain chemistry will do, transcends the limits of what our brains will do, and we find ourselves not only being part of a body instinct reality, but also being part of a bigger reality, the breath of God reality. And the way that we do that, the way that we start that growth dynamic in play, is we walk the spiritual journey. We tap into the breath of God that is within us. We familiarize ourselves with the Spirit of God, the Imago Dei that is within us, because that too is in you. And unlike your genetic conditioning, divine life love is not limited by proximity. Unlike your genetic conditioning, divine life love is not limited by sameness or alikeness. That love extends to faraway places that are filled with faraway people. That love is for you, and it is for your nation and it is for all the nations of all the earth. But to awaken to that interior dynamic is demanding. To come alive to that deeper dimension of our humanity requires that we walk something more than the instinct journey. It requires that we walk something more than the lower brain journey. It requires that we walk the spiritual journey. So we, in our community, we speak of the spiritual journey in a very catchy way. We talk about it, we call it working the circle, the four categories of spiritual practice. Live the spiritual life, we say. Engage in the spiritual practices, we say. Work on the ancient practices and bring them into the rhythm of your daily life. Do that and something happens to you. One of the things that happens to you is that the circle of those for whom you care grows larger and larger and larger and larger. The circle of those for whom you care expands and it gets harder and harder and harder to put a dividing line between us and them. How far out do we draw that circle? Where do we put it? And as we walk on the spiritual journey, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger to the place where I come eventually to an understanding I can't go to bed with my kids not hungry if anyone else goes to bed with their kids hungry. Because they are me. They carry the same divine life that I carry. I can't have this genetically conditioned proximity criteria that makes it okay for someone on the other side of town to be suffering when I'm not suffering. I can't do that because someone on the other side of town carries the same divine light that I carry, is made of the same breath of God that I'm made of, that manifests the same thing. It makes no more sense for me to care for my kids and not think about your kids than it does for me not to care for me. Because in a sense, we carry that same embedded light of the divine. Well, You've heard those words before. But those words don't shape our basic instinctive gut reactions until they get deeply embedded within us, which happens when we work the circle. It happens when we engage in the rhythmic practices and bring them into our lives. We begin to see an elevated vantage 
We begin to do the practices, and the practices then do us and make us alive to something deeper. When we began to speak about Ferrier Village uh, and about Haiti uh, last year, our brains did what our brains do. I heard quite a few times, hey Doug, you're talking about faraway people. What about nearby people? Why would we, we, we be giving our focus and our energy and our dollars to faraway people when there's nearby people here who are also suffering? And so next time I want to speak, the next time I speak, I want to talk about these particular faraway people. I want to tell you a story of what it's like to live in the nation of Haiti and particularly how soil degradation has made it almost impossible to start the process by which advancement would go forward. And I want to talk about a group of leaders who are supporting and loving there. And my hope is that we as a community can do both. We can put our hand to effectively loving nearby people but we can also put our hand to effectively loving a handful of people in Ferrier Village. My hope is to tell you the story in a way that your brain will work with you. My hope is to tell you the story in a way that your brain will help you so that you can begin to see, oh, that's kind of like me. But my hope is also that as we work the circle, even when our brains are working against us, And even when that seems like a faraway place and we don't have the visceral instinctive response that our brains can do for us, we would also see the bigger truth that oneness is a better way of understanding the earth than two-ness. That nearby people and faraway people are more one than two, are more us than them. So, Holy Spirit of God, may ours be expanded lives, bigger than instinct lives, transcending of our limited brain lives. I pray that that would be so in us. I pray that that would be so among us. In Jesus' name, amen.